I didn't expect to find a tape from Debbie's memorial service. Even if I thought it existed, the likelihood of finding it in the keepsake piles at my dad's house was pretty low. He finds himself the collector of past lives stuff. He has his own stuff, of course, and he's a collector. A whole wall of vinyl, a gazillion CDs, and countless posters. He has Debbie's stuff, some of it unmoved since her passing in 2004. He has his mom's stuff, my grandmother, who passed away in 2019 at the age of 99. And she had kept her husband's family stuff and stuff from both of her own parents. We're talking historical stuff, sentimental stuff, art stuff, valuable stuff, and a fair amount of garbage stuff. There's no way I would find a specific tape in all that stuff. I was worried I'd have trouble finding the tapes at all, much less a specific recording from her memorial service. So imagine my surprise when I first find two small cases of cassettes, each a single row of 12 tapes. There's a dual cassette deck, easy to extract. I place it on my makeshift desk, plug it in, and connect it to my audio recorder. I've already pulled out a cassette I want to hear. Brothers of the Night, live in 1982. I've been hearing about this band for years, but I've never heard their music. But wait, what's this white cassette that's in the player already? It's a white tape with no label on it, but in blue Sharpie, it says, Debbie Memorial Service, March 3rd, 2004. I put it back in and hit play. We're gathered here in celebration of Debbie Campbell Florin's life. It's so much aware that uh, persons come to funeral services because they're members of that person's family or members of their church, longtime business associates. As many people as are here today come to funerals because someone is a prominent political leader, a prominent business leader, head of a major corporation, longtime civic benefactor. But I think you're here because most of you feel like that Debbie was your best friend. It's just amazing how many of you feel so very close to this woman. Welcome to the Rediscovering Debbie Campbell podcast, where you'll join me, Lynn's Florin. I'm Debbie's stepson. As I dig into her career, archival recordings, and conversations with people who loved her. If you haven't heard of Debbie Campbell before, then you are in for a bittersweet treat. You'll have the unique opportunity to meet her, fall in love with her immense talent and grace, and grieve her devastating loss all through the episodes of this podcast. I'm a podcast producer based in Los Angeles but I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I moved to California at the age of 10 with my mother and brother after my parents split up. I would travel back to T-Town during spring, summer, and holiday school breaks each year and spend a lot of time with my dad and Debbie that way. I saw her sing a lot and heard about her gigs when I'd make my weekly calls with the fam, but I never did the math that she must have had a tremendous backstory in order to be singing at these vast and varied venues. As I started this journey, I asked myself, how far back can I find evidence of Debbie online? I know she was born Deborah Ruth Voorhees in Fort Worth, Texas, 
And my dad told me about a band she was in back in the 60s called the Candy Canes. With that info, I was able to get in touch with Candy Chase using good old Facebook. Candy came up with the band name back in the day, and she's now a bass player living in the Los Angeles area. We'll hear from Candy in episode two, but she was really kind to introduce me to two other former Candy Canes, Joanne and Sharon. I got a chance to speak with Sharon, and it felt like meeting a long-lost family member. I went online and heard as much as I could find, recognized the voice. Debbie always did Soul Man, which was one of our biggies. I was so amazed at a couple of things. One, how good she was. And yet here was I front in the band. And they were all so gracious and loving and accepting. And if I had been her, I would have been really pissed. You know, who's this twit that you brought in that, you know, this know-it-all. It was the strangest time of my life. That does sound like a pretty unique experience. I wonder what it's like to have that memory bouncing around in your head. About 15 years ago, I was in an acting class and some of the kids were writing scenes and we were kind of writing scenes for each other. And I wrote a scene about the candy canes. And I thought, okay, I've got great stories. And I said, oh my God, where are these women that have lived in my head for all these years? And all I could remember, I could remember Debbie Voorhees but I was spelling it wrong. Candy was Candy Horn was the name that she was singing under at the time. And she founded the band and I was only with them a very, very short time. But anyway, I decided, okay, if I'm going to explore that, I really wanted to connect with them and see if it was okay. If I used my memory of some of that time, true stuff that actually happened. Okay. I'm curious. How did she get involved with the Candy Canes and what kind of crazy stories happened? The way this all goes back, 1963, I was working in a recording studio in Fort Worth. It was called Sound City. I was really a baby. I can't believe my mother. I would be there for 24 hours straight with all these guys. Everybody was so kind to me. They were so good to me because I was like 15, 16. My best friend and I were singing there and doing background music. And I would do jingles. I would do commercials for people when they came in and needed it. I learned how to run the board and I was doing my own editing and everything because they'd write commercials and stuff and I would sing them. And then I did the harmony. But anyway, so I had worked there for a couple of years and then I had a minor hit called Nobody Likes It But Us. And it was on the dot label. It was number one in Abilene, Texas for five weeks. I mean, but it was like in the top 10 in Dallas and, and Boston. It did okay. You know, it wasn't anything big, but I was a minor celebrity in Fort Worth. So I graduated from high school in 65 and oh gosh, I sang with the McCoys, Hang On Sloopy and the Bo Brummels and Freddie and the Dreamers, all these crazy bands from the mid sixties. And I'd gotten a little name for myself. I thought I was a big star and I thought I would always be one. I never understood that it was a lot of work to keep your career. So I just went on flopping around doing whatever I was doing. And I was really more devoted to being a theater major. But in the summer of 1966, I was invited by Mickey Moody, Uncle Mickey, who was the manager of the Candy Canes, to join this girl band because they were going to go on a USO tour. My manager, I thought, well, that's cool. You know, I'll do that. So we started these heavy duty rehearsals. And one of them, I think it was Candy's house. They were in the garage. They were fabulous. I mean, Debbie had a voice. She did R&B. I was more pop. Leslie Gore, they even compared me to Patti Page or Doris Day because I sang more of that kind of pop songs. I went in and rehearsed and I'm like, 
okay, what do they need me for? Standing there playing my tambourine. And Debbie was an incredible lead guitarist. Candy was a bass player like I have never since played with. And Mylon was a hoot on the drums and Joanne was so good on keyboard. We were going on a brief U.S. tour before we did the USO tour, just to kind of get all our material together. We got on the road in the fall of 66, and this was in early November, and we got to Oregon. We had a gig, and it was called Surf Club or Surf City or something like that. It was a nightclub. So we started playing there every night. Five weeks we played there. And it was the life of a band, which I had never done before. You play until 2 a.m. And then you go eat. And then you go sleep. And then around 1 o'clock, you get up and you have breakfast and you go rehearse for like three hours. And then you go back and maybe take a nap, but probably not. And get dressed for the night and doll up. And we had the big hair and the boots and the short skirts. It was quite a life and everybody seemed acclimated to it. And it was very successful. And so we had played there for quite a while. We packed the house and when we would pull those horns out on Sylvan, the audience would just go crazy. It was great fun. The performance part of it. Sounds like it was a lot of fun on stage, but as Sharon alludes to, she has memories of the offstage pieces that weren't quite so fun. But for now, I wanted to hear about the scene she was going to write for that acting class. We spent Thanksgiving there, and it was around Thanksgiving, I remember, that it was Debbie's birthday. We sang happy birthday, had a little birthday cake, and had a special dinner and all this stuff. Debbie and I were laughing and talking, and all of a sudden she stopped and she said, you know, I really, really like you. And I said, well, I like you too. And I think you're so talented. And she said, I just don't want to lie to you anymore. And I said, okay. And she said, I'm just turning 16. Just turning 16? I was just overwhelmed. I couldn't even speak. Because, I mean, I was only three years older, but I was the woman. I'd been married, you know, and I'd been to college and all this stuff. But we didn't tell Mickey that she told me because it was all secret. And they were doing high school classes, the remote classes that a lot of people did. And I thought it was college. I thought they were doing college courses. That's what they told me. And when she said that, everything I felt just welled up as far as her being so, they were so mature, but they were in a cage. And I thought she was turning 19. I mean, that's what they told me until she'd been 18. But I knew they'd been on the road for two years already. They'd been singing together. She and Candy and Mylon had been together for quite a long time. I'm like, how did they get away with that? Yeah. How did they get away with that? Weren't there any adults around? Mickey was their guardian, which I didn't know. So he had been made their guardian. So he had complete responsibility for these these children, basically. And he was always so good to us. There was never anything untoward about the relationship. But I said, okay, now understand. Now understand why we can't talk to anybody outside of each other. We weren't allowed to interact with anybody because he was terrified. And we were also too underage to be in those clubs. Yeah, I have so many questions about the underage bit. We're definitely going to have to get into that in episode two. What has resulted in the things that I kept remembering later is the generosity of these women, these girls, they were girls, you know, they were children, but the generosity and sweetness and accepting 
me with all my flaws, because I really was a little diva back then. I'm not a diva anymore. I've had the most wonderful, happy life. Only thing I missed was not getting to know the Candy Canes girls after we got older. I would have loved her. I know I would have. Everything I've read and seen. But anyway, it was quite a time. And recently, ever since I found Candy, and I keep trying to explain, I have three daughters. And I tell them, I said, you have no idea what it means to me to find, start finding out what happened to these people who I had no idea how influential they would be on my life and on my ability to accept other people and understand myself a little bit better later on and realize what a twit I was back then and how I threw that opportunity away not to stay with the band. We ended up not going on the USO tour that got canceled because I think the Vietnam War had kind of bubbled up and it got kind of dangerous and so by the end of our tour, close to Christmas, we went back. And since there was really no need for me, there was no point in me going back in the band because I was only there for the USO tour anyway. And so I went back to college at that point. But I've always regretted not hanging on at least to be able to follow them and watch them. They were such musicians at 16 years old. She was, I mean, she could do that lead guitar that was just just blow everybody in the club away what i would give to go back in time and watch one of those shows well i guess this podcast is sort of like doing that trying to unearth the pieces of the candy canes and the rest of debbie's career continue on this journey of rediscovering debbie campbell after the break If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter. On February 3rd of 2022, I got a call out of the blue. Hi, Lynn. My name's Brenda Klein, and Terry Klein gave me your name and told me I should call you. And he said that you had contacted him in regards to Debbie Campbell, who was a personal friend of mine. I work in the music business, and I'm executive producer of a big event that we're about to have in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at Kane's Ballroom on May 15th. We are honoring Debbie and two others that has passed away that's actually inductees on Women of Song, the heart and spirit of Oklahoma. And it's all about women artists from Oklahoma. This certainly had my ears perking up, but there was something else in the voicemail I couldn't ignore. And ironically, Terry and I were married after he and Debbie were married, but Debbie and I were very good friends. Wait, what? Okay, I'm gonna have to ask Brenda more about that one. And Terry for that matter. I'd reached out to Terry Klein in 2021 sometime when I first learned his name. He was Debbie's second husband. He was really nice and quite supportive of my project to rediscover Debbie through the podcast. Long story short, I took Brenda's voicemail as a cosmic sign that my podcast about Debbie might have an audience, and I booked an 11-day Tulsa visit for May. 
so I could attend this tribute event and reconnect with the Tulsa music folks who knew and loved her. I told my dad I was visiting, which he is always a fan of, and then I started to tell him about Brenda and the show. His reaction was not what I expected. My first reaction was, well, that's interesting, but it seems weird. What is this woman who obviously was a later spouse of Debbie's former spouse doing, putting together a tribute to Debbie? It just seemed weird to me. But after some internal gnashing of teeth, I finally got myself to stop stewing about it and decide to uh, just let them do what they were going to do, which they were obviously going to do anyway. Wish them well and hope it turned out okay. Yeah, no argument here that the circumstances are a little bit strange. But nonetheless, it did get me to come out and buy a flight to Tulsa. But I wanted to know how hard it would be to get a hold of people and pull them out of the woodwork to have interviews and talk about Debbie. The first hurdle is purely technical. To me, there's three levels of tech. There's high tech, people like you. There's low tech, like me. And then there's no tech. (laughs) And that's about where Walt falls into that. So coordinating is hard because their email use is spotty, and we're lucky if they do texting. And the virtual tools that we normally use for podcasts, like Squadcast or even a backup Zoom, are off the table unless we enlist someone locally to help facilitate. And by that, I mean run the whole thing. So for the most part, we're going to have to figure out face-to-face interviews or with a select few, I can record phone calls pretty easily. I don't like phones. I don't like to talk on the phone. You know, I'd rather talk to somebody just one-on-one, face-to-face kind of deal. So it's not going to be easy. And the real hard part is the games you might have to play to get their attention. I mean, these guys are in their 60s and 70s, and they don't really need to take my calls. They play when they want to, and above all else, they enjoy their privacy. But the first person my dad got in touch with was Chuck DeWalt. Boom Boom, as Debbie used to call him on stage. He drummed for her starting in the late 70s, playing together in the Brothers of the Night in the early 80s, and played on her solo album Two Hearts in 84. He knew her really well, and really misses the no-nonsense attitude she had about stage antics. Oh my God, so professional. One of the many things I loved about her, she was all business. I mean, you get up on that stage, there's not going to be any horsing around. And I'm known to horse around. (laughs) I mean, mean, I'm the horse-arounder of all of them. You know, I just might as well have fun, you know, kid around. But... With Debbie, it's all business, and I knew that. I asked him about some of his favorite memories from back in the day playing with Debbie. I still remember nights at Bonnie Raitt and Debbie Campbell at the Nine of Cups. We had so many nice venues, you know, Magician's Theater, Boston Avenue Market, Nine of Cups, Paradise Club. I mean, on and on, some really good places. I realized I needed a bit more historical context in order to set the scene for what the music scene was like here in Tulsa when Debbie was coming up. And so I reached out to John Woolley. He used to be a writer for the Tulsa World, and he wrote a lot of articles about Debbie over the years. In fact, when I first reached out to him, I joked that most of the written word about Debbie was written by him. So I invited him over to my dad's house, and we sat down on the couch 
and talked a bit about music and Tulsa, Debbie, and people like Leon Russell. You're not old enough to have been there, but in the early 70s, when Leon came back to town, he just came back and he just sprinkled stardust over the whole city. I mean, for a very brief, shining moment, Tulsa was a crossroads of international rock and roll. I mean, you could go into clubs at Clapton jamming, or Clapton was hugely influenced by Rock and Jimmy Byfield, mm-hmm. Brothers of the Nine. In fact, everybody says, well, he was so influenced by J.J. Cale. Pretty good evidence exists to suggest that it was really Steve Hickerson that was even more of an influence. But you listen to Clapton before he comes to Tulsa and after, and that's a complete Tulsa makeover. The town was just saturated with music at that time, the early to mid-70s. And Debbie was a part of that. I've seen a poster with her, Jimmy Byfield, and Jim Sweeney. She's kind of leaning up against Byfield, and Sweeney's over there. It's just absolutely beautiful. I used to try and define that whole Tulsa sound thing that Debbie was such a part of, you know, because, look, the trio that came out of Tulsa, the original three major Tulsa sound figures, don't sound a thing alike, and that is... David Gates, Leon Russell, and J.J. Cale. So is the Tulsa sound that soft rock that Gates perfected? Is it Leon Russell's gospel, kind of over, you know, all of the background vocals? Or is it Cale's very laid-back, sort of repetitive, deep groove, which a lot of people will say that that's it. What I figured out was that it wasn't so much the style of music as it was the people who were playing it. And by that I mean, Cale told me one time, I think this goes a long way toward explaining it, Tulsa was the only place I ever worked where if, say, you were booked for a gig and then you got an offer for a better gig the same night, it was your responsibility to find someone to take your spot that was at least as good, if not better, than you were. He says, I never saw that anywhere in the world except Tulsa, Oklahoma. What does that say? That's that camaraderie thing. That's that whole brotherhood thing. And now I'm doing this thing for Women of Song, for Brenda Klein. And, of course, talking about Debbie in it. And I'm 73, and I'm always learning still. And it's a sisterhood as well. And you know what Debbie was able to do? She really was more of a musical explorer than the rest of them. She didn't just get one thing and stick with it. And I know, of course, it reflected her faith always, spirituality. She was a linchpin on a lot of things. And her voice, in a way, got stronger as she went on. That's right. John Woolley is the MC for Brenda Klein's Women of Song event. Well... We're going to have to get into how that went in a future episode. For now, my inquiry took me in another direction. I ran across an old VHS tape, which I've digitized, and it had a Channel 2 News profile about Debbie from sometime in the mid-90s. And it was produced by Karen Keith, who used to work for Channel 2 in Tulsa. Well, now Karen Keith is a Tulsa County Commissioner. And so I reached out to her through her website, and she was really gracious to talk to me. I just look at Debbie Campbell as the quintessential Tulsa artist. Everybody wanted to go hear her perform. We would try to find out where she was going to be playing and we would go and, you know, we had some of our favorites and then, you know, you could always request something and she would play it. But I mean, her voice, it was just this soothing, 
wonderful voice. But I tell you what also went along with her voice was the pure joy that was Debbie Campbell, the pure, unadulterated joy. I mean, she's just a, a remarkable human being, and we lost her way too soon. We love me true. After the break, you'll meet somebody that I met in a virtual songwriting workshop where I really wasn't expecting to meet somebody connected to this project. Next thing you know, Linz is talking about Debbie Campbell, and I was like, oh yeah, by the way, I got a few Debbie Campbell stories, and hey, <laughs> I know her, and it was just crazy because it was like, what are the odds of the two of us coming into contact with each other? Hey everyone, my name is Aubrey Allen and I'm a producer here on Rediscovering Debbie Campbell. Together, Linz and I have put hundreds of hours into this project so far and we're just getting started. So if you want to help us continue to tell Debbie's story, please click the donate button in our show notes or in our link tree to make a one-time donation. Every little bit will go directly towards the production of this show, which works to showcase and preserve the history of Debbie Campbell and artists like her. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. I wrote my first song when I was 11 years old. I still have the manila folder I wrote the lyrics on. I didn't think much of it, I figured everyone did that. Well, I come from a musical family, but I joke that a love of music is all my parents really ever had in common. I was born in Tulsa, but when I was 10, my parents split up and my mom took my brother and me to California. I get exposed to a ton of new music and culture. Meanwhile, back in Tulsa, my dad marries a songwriter named Debbie Campbell. I know divorce isn't usually a good thing, but in hindsight, I got more influences and had more legitimately hard stuff to write about, so it's kind of a songwriter's dream. In the couple years before COVID, I'd been eyeballing a specific songwriting retreat. Folk singer Dar Williams does these week-long retreats called Writing a Song That Matters, and I've never had the funds or the spare time to go. But when the pandemic hit, they went virtual, and that was my in. So while the days were designed for an East Coast clock, early mornings for me in LA, I met fellow songwriters from all over the country. One day, we were encouraged to participate in the SoFab Collab, where they drew names randomly for songwriting collaboration partners. And wouldn't you know it, I was paired with a woman from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, a suburb of my birthplace, Tulsa. My name is Sarah Pope Joy, and I've been a singer-songwriter since I was uh, 16 years old. Okay, I had to ask, does she know Debbie? I met Debbie when I was a teenager. I had heard about her and seen her perform a couple times in the Tulsa area. And being a singer-songwriter myself, she was someone I really looked up to and wanted to learn from her as much as I could. And one day I reached out to see if I could meet her. <laughs> and it was a big deal for me because I really didn't know what I was doing. And so I had a little demo tape. I brought it with me and she was so nice, very welcoming. And I went to her house, actually. I don't even remember if she listened to the song. I think she might have. But the biggest thing that I left with was that she gave me so much encouragement. She's a big influence in my moving to Nashville. You know, me being her stepson, it's a given that Debbie's going to have an influence on my life and my career, but 
It hits differently to see the influence she had on my peers and other people I meet in the wild. At the time I was going to nursing school and I did want to go there, but I just remember her telling me, I understand that you're going to the nursing field so that you can work as a nurse on the weekends and right through the week, because that was my plan. She said, but a lot of times people who go to nursing, they go ahead and they get degree after degree and they just keep building upon it. And she's like, whatever you do, don't do that. (laughs) I'm sure that's the only adult that ever told me that. And she said, just keep working on your songwriting. Don't let what other people think you should do get in the way of your dreams and what you really want to do. And she just kept harping that if you want to be a songwriter, you need to move to Nashville. You need to move to Nashville. And how long after that conversation did you move to Nashville? Probably within a year. Wow. She was obviously in the business of music and did a lot around here in addition to nationally. And so just her encouragement, yeah, it was all I needed. So after she encouraged me to move to Nashville, I moved there and it was about a year after moving there. I decided that I wanted to come back home and play. And so I actually called her and I said, hey, this is the girl you told to move to Nashville. Well, I'm here. And uh, (laughs) I just wanted to know, would it be okay if I opened for you at a show sometime? And so I don't know why, but she was just like, hey, yeah, sure. (laughs) It was awesome. I was like, wow. (laughs) So she had me open for her at a summer's fifth night in Utica Square. In that generosity meant a lot to me. But besides that, just watching her with a crowd of that size, really connecting with everybody there, she really had a way of connecting with people when she performed. And I think that was, it was really evident. And and I think that's something that's hard to do, especially at a crowd that size, because there's so many people. But you could just see people really engaged in her singing, no matter what song she was singing. They were really engaged into what she was doing because she really made the audience a part of it in a big way. Yeah, she really had a gift with knowing how to, I don't know, like... Playing the audience as an instrument, almost. Yeah, she really did. Now that I'd met Sarah and gotten to know her music a little bit, I was really interested in knowing a bit more about the album she was working on, about Oklahoma history. So I'm putting together a group of songs, about 12 songs, about Oklahoma history and historical context being from the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma City bombing to more lighthearted things like Leon Russell, for instance. The idea of the album is to just get the story behind the story and really share these histories that are a part of all Oklahomans. And there's a lot of American stories within that as well. But I think one thing that's really cool tied in with Debbie is that I'm going to be going into the studio, into Leon Russell's studio, the church studio, and recording three songs. And one of them is actually a song about Leon Russell and Spencer Sutton her keyboard player is going to be on that song. So that'll be really cool. It'll be a lot of fun to see him again and play with him as well. That's another cool serendipity moment. I remember Spencer from growing up. He was playing piano at a lot of Debbie's gigs and I have really, really fond memories of him. And so it's great to hear that Spencer is now playing on Sarah's track for her Oklahoma history album. So I'm just doing like three songs at a time in little chunks. I like it. It's a little less overwhelming (laughs) as opposed to trying to get it all done in one week. 
I'm excited about it. It's coming together. It was great to meet Sarah through the internet. And I was really excited to meet with her in person next time I came to Tulsa. So I reached out when I got there in May. Hey, Sarah, I just arrived in Tulsa. What's your schedule like? I'd like to meet up while I'm in town. Oh, cool. I'll be at the church on Wednesday. You should come by. So that's how I found myself hanging out in the beautiful, legendary, and recently refurbished church studio while session player Brandon Autry laid down guitar on a couple of Sarah's songs. I'm a recording guy myself, so this environment feels like home to me. So yeah, so we'll maybe just try some fills in that one spot. I'll do some at the end. Yeah. Is there anything else you're thinking? or Everything else I love. Now let's talk for a minute about the church studio. One of the first things my dad wanted to do when I arrived on this Tulsa trip is to take me to the recently renovated and upgraded church studio. So my first day in town, we went out for Sunday brunch at the Freeway Cafe and walked across the street to the site of the church studio, a beautiful building with an epic wizard-like statue of Oklahoma music legend Leon Russell out front. Alas, Sundays are the lone day that the studio is closed to the public, so we got an outside look and went on our way. It had a special energy to it, with good reason. It was an old church purchased in the 70s by Leon Russell, whose light was shining pretty bright there for a few years. Not just in Oklahoma, but his proximity to Joe Cocker and Eric Clapton gave him an international reach, and he is well known in Tulsa for helping blow the door open on the Tulsa music scene, bringing more than a few Tulsa folks with him to the national stage. And so he had this studio made, and an awful lot of good music was recorded there. It later closed, and only recently reopened with state-of-the-art updates. They're also doing these legacy concerts with big-name acts playing inside the studio room. My dad went to the one they did with Kenny Loggins, and while I was visiting, they were promoting the show with Ann Wilson from Heart. These are intimate shows, and they record them extremely well, both audio and video. You should definitely check out their YouTube channel. It's been great to get to know Sarah and have a window into life at the church studio. It helps paint a picture of the music scene Debbie helped foster, and helps me imagine Debbie's many recording sessions. And Sarah told me a story that made me stop and think. I remember I was in California and I was actually at the Folk Alliance Conference. It was in San Diego. And I remember, I don't know if it was a call or what, but I just remember hearing the news that, that Debbie Campbell had passed. And she was obviously a very private person. And so we didn't know. And it just, she was young too. And so it was just, it was a really hard hit for the Tulsa music community and Oklahoma and wider than that. But she was just really near and dear to our hearts. And so around that same time was when my aunt passed. I ended up writing a song about them both passing and how special they were. It's called Schoolroom of the Sky. And it brings me back to that first tape, the one of Debbie's memorial service. I remember there were hundreds of people at that church in Tulsa, and I'd always imagined those people were the stories I needed to find. But for every person in a pew that day, there were likely a handful of Sarahs finding out after the fact and devastated. Keep an eye out for our next episode all about the candy canes. So that was the start of the candy canes right there. Yeah, we were good. We were serious. You know, we really wanted to make it. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Rediscovering Debbie Campbell 
Growth Network Podcasts production. Produced by Linz Florin and Aubrey Allen. With support from Marsha Ord, Sari Wienerman, Jeannie McIntyre, Riley Armstrong, and Brianna Javon. Special thanks to my dad, Charles Florin, for support and access to Debbie's stuff. Find more information about this project and the team that put it together in the written show notes in your podcast player or at debbiepodcast.com. If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter. Rediscovering Debbie Campbell is produced by Linz Florin and Aubrey Allen for Growth Network Podcasts. Additional support provided by Brianna Javon. Don't forget to check out the show notes where you can find links to sign up for our newsletter and follow us on our social pages, such as our Facebook group filled with not only fans, but also her friends and family. Thanks to our guests for sharing their stories and to the generous donors who have contributed financially on our website. This is a labor of love, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen, share, and support us any way you can. Thank you. Thank you very much.